From Studio A in Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C., this is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. And good afternoon out there in Radio Lander. Good morning, depending on when you listen to the podcast. Uh, we are here in Studio A for the best political talk show you've never heard of. Joining me in studio, he is the former Joe Biden political operative. Uh, he is also a birth certified attorney in the great state of Maryland and the District of Columbia. He is Dan Littner Esquire. Hello, Daniel. You can just call me Dan the Unmatched and Wise. No, no unfortunately we can't, but that's that's a nice try. Uh, joining, us on, uh, joining us also in studio, what are you doing? <laughs> He's like walking around plugging stuff in. I'm like, that can't be good. He is the uh, former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade. He is Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. Again, I ask you, what were you doing? Trying to adjust my chair. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I do. (laughs) Anyway, joining us from an undescript room in Miami, Florida, he is the former one-star admiral from your United States Navy. He is the one we know as Admiral Ken Carradine. Hello, Admiral. Good afternoon, all. And joining us from a non-disclosed location in the Bay State of Massachusetts, he is the author of such great books as American Politics on the Rocks. He is the one we know as Rich Rubino. Hello, Richard. Hello. Well, just call me a stable genius then. Yeah, okay. We, we're not going to do that either. And uh, <laughs> anyway, let, let, let's, get, uh, let, let, let's get right into it. Um, uh, yesterday, the, the president announced uh, that the U.S. forces would be pulling out of what is known as uh, Kurdish Syria, the the eastern front and all presence in the region of northwestern Iraq, eastern Syria, and the part that we know as Kurdistan. Did he actually announce or didn't he just tweet it? <laughs> that, isn't that an announcement by this administration? Uh, that suggests more dignity for what was done. Well, regardless, it's caused a huge, huge uh, dumpster fire here in the nation's capital. Uh, the the bottom line here, in case you don't know, the the Kurds, uh, Syrian Kurds, and the and the Peshmerga have been very much at our sides, if not doing a majority of the fighting against ISIS in the region. A large part of the thwarting of Irish uh, of ISIS power in the region. Yeah, I don't, 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 I don't no, think there's no, much Irish. Just, no, no, there's not. <laughs> ISIS power in the region has been, because of the fact that we have uh, such a good relationship and the fighting spirit of the Peshmerga, uh, it, it's been an up and down relationship. There's a lot of history between Turkey, a NATO ally, and the Kurds. But this is uh, this is a serious subject. It's a, it's a very serious situation if the president does pull through, and that's why we brought in our uh, our guest for this segment. Joining us now, he is the Washington bureau chief for Kurdistan Twenty Four News, uh, Rahim Rashidi. Rahim, my friend, how are you? How are you? Thank you for having me. Now, thank you for joining us, Rahim. Rahim, let, let, let's start off with the big question right now that uh, is kind of on everybody's mind is what what right now is uh, the current feeling in Kurdistan based on the announcement of President Trump? The, actually, the feeling uh, so bad and people of Kurdistan are very sad. They believe abandoned by United States uh, as a loyalist ally. And it was shocked 
for everybody and for Kurdish friends uh, here in Washington, for many officials, House representatives, and uh, because uh, for during uh, those years and uh, U.S. Uh, foreign policy is not clear, and especially about the region, and this is a very, very scary situation over there. Right. Raheem, one year ago today, uh, you were in a press briefing with uh, President Trump. During that press meeting, you were called out. In fact, President Trump famously called you Mr. Kurd uh, during that press meeting. The The question I have for you is, is that, you know, he spoke of how important the Kurdish people were, how in, how special Kurdistan was to America, or, or, or the Kurdish region was to American foreign policy and American uh, military strategy in the region. Uh, today, how did President Trump do a 180, and was there any indication? Did you have any signs that this was going to be the case from either the le- from either Congress, the White House, or the Pentagon. Uh, the, you are right, and I remember this time, and it was great for us because our identity has been denied for a long time by Turkish government, Iranian government, Iraqi government, and Syrian uh, government as well. The Kurds in Syria they don't have any passport and any identity, and the. the call them refugee and just for your information but the, the let me just uh, remind uh, you and uh, when we had a very very uh, successful referendum peacefully and democratic uh, referendum when the uh, majority strong majority uh, close to 9 5% of the uh, Kurdish people in Iraqi Kurdistan, in Karji Kurdistan regional government, voted for yes and voted yes for independence. They don't want to be victim uh, between and or challenging uh, between Shia and Sunnis and continue for many, many decades and centuries. Uh, but after that, uh, United States abandoned and against it, and Iran became more active than ever in the region. I remember in October 16, Qasem Soleimani, the State Department, called them terrorists, Abu Mahdi Mandes, and they used U.S. weapons at a Kurdistan, at a Peshmerga, at a loyal, loyal allies for many decades. And Kurdistan, I just wanted to tell you, for many, many decades, no American became wounded in Kurdistan. The Kurds are very pro-American and loyal allies. And why should be bonded by United States and uh, uh, U.S. foreign policy uh, material them? So that, that 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 is that is really shocking. Right. And that is unacceptable. So so Raheem, you know the uh, the PKK were listed as a terrorist organization by the U.S. State Department. Uh, we have not recognized your independence in Kurdistan or recognized the sovereignty of the court of the Kurdish government in Iraq. Uh, yet the Peshmerga continue to fight and in many instances die 
uh, for and alongside Americans in this fight against ISIS. Why do they keep fighting this fight after uh, the American government continue? And this is both Democratic and Republican. This has not changed in the better part of a decade and a half. <clears throat> why do they still fight and why do they still feel an alliance to the U.S.? But, uh, I think the, the Kurdish people, the Peshmerga, will keep fighting to protect them people, Kurdistani people. And this is not e- easy for United States of America to leave the region. And as many experts and many officials in Washington told me and told you, you know that uh, this is a gift for Assad regime, for Iranian regime, and for Russia. So those countries... Um, very strongly challenging United States and U.S. benefits over there. But uh, if, if U.S. will leave the region soon, absolutely, because we're looking for another partner, maybe Iran, maybe Russia, and that is that is terrible for U.S. national security as well. Does, does what happens to? Uh, the government in Erbil and the Kurdish central government, can they sustain power? Can they sustain the sovereignty, the self-sovereignty that they recognize without U.S. support and with Turkey allowing to roam free in the region? At this time, after uh, United States abandoned the Kurdistan referendum for independence in September 25th, 2017, but the relationship is very good now, and economically uh, uh, and uh, diplomatically, and as uh, Secretary of State went to Kurdistan and many high officials. The, the relationship between Hauler or Erbil and Washington is very good uh, at this time. But the, the scary situation is uh, in Rojava, in north of Syria, for the Syrian Kurds. If U.S. will leave, uh, that will be very bad for the Kurds, for, that will be for civil war. And because the, the, the government in north of Syria protect all minorities, uh, Iraqi Kurdistan, Jewish, many Christians, uh, Yazidis, Shia, Sunnis, and Kurdistan population is uh, 5 million. There more than uh, 2 million refugees from uh, some part of Iraq, from Syria. And if Turkey will attack them, absolutely. Turkey not able to fight terrorism and ISIS. As you know, they will Kurds and U.S. ally, U.S. ally and only ally on the Syria, so five shoulder by shoulder with the United States. And uh, Rahim, can can Kurdistan survive a attack from Turkey, whether it is a a a in your face military attack? or a staggered political and intelligence attack and fight ISIS at the same time? Because to me, it seems like not only is Turkey going to expand its influence, Iran is going to uh, expand its influence, but at the same time, if the Peshmerga and the Kurdish forces are not focused on fighting ISIS, 
Mm-hmm. That seems that ISIS could come back in strength as well. Am I wrong? That is that is that is absolutely correct, and I agree with you. Look, after Shia militia control Kirkuk under Iranian influence, the ISIS die after die became uh, active around the Kirkuk, and that is the destabilized region by Turkish attack and by Iranian policies. That is a very good opportunity for ISIS and became organized and stronger, and that will be very dangerous for U.S. national security, as you know. Uh, but don't forget, we have a curse in Iran, we have a curse in Turkey, in Iraq, and in Syria. And the curse in Syria and in Iraq, uh, they are free, and they have a very good situation. They are uh, West ally, they are U- U.S. ally, they are very, very pro-Americans, and U.S. should stand with them for U.S. benefits and for them benefits as well. And if U.S. will leave region, believe me, ISIS and other terrorist groups like Jibhat Nasser and some of them uh, support by Iranian regime, uh, as you know, uh, that will be organized and join ISIS and that will fight uh, U.S. ally as Israel and another country on the region. Very good. Uh, Alan Moore, you got a quick question. Yeah, I've got a question, Rahim. Do you have any idea how what level of economic and military assistance the U.S. provides to the uh, to the Kurdish forces in, in northern Syria? Look, those forces and the Kurdish forces in north of Syria first fight for themselves and for their rights. Of course. And when ISIS became very quickly, ISIS became uncontrolled the 70% of the Syria, and then uh, during 24 hours controlled the second city of Iraq, they called Mosul. Okay? The U.S. provide this equipment to fight against ISIS. And uh, this is President Obama decided, it's a President uh, Trump decided. I don't have any data, but uh, this is uh, just provide this equipment to fight against ISIS. And don't forget, the, the curse in Syria lost 12,000 heroes in fight against ISIS. That is true. The, the United States and coalition of ISIS to defeat ISIS provide equipment to them. But they lost life and died for themselves and for United States of America as well. No, no, I understand all of that. The reason I was asking is because it's not as though, and believe me, I, <laughs> I do not like the decision that was made. I don't like the way it was made. I don't like the way it was announced. I don't like the way that the president is now talking about it. But when we talk about what the Kurds may do now in response, I'm just reminded that they do have economic and military linkages uh, and dependencies on the United States um, even if we uh, pull out uh, uh, our troops. And so it's not a simple matter of saying, oh, you're gone. Let's see who else is out there to help us. Because as far, so far as I know, the U.S. has not said it's not going to support financially or even with military equipment supplies of the Kurdish forces. Is that your understanding? Yes. Yes. 
and the Kurdistan is very rich by oil and gas as well. Right. <laughs> Both yeah. sides in Syria and in the Iraqi Kurdistan but, too. But, and the, 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 the oil territory is majority of uh, oil territory under uh, Kurdi, uh, Kurdish uh, uh, control, Kurdish uh, Hassad's control. Right, but Syrian democratic forces. Right, but to 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 Alan's point though, Rahim, uh, you know the military, the, the Peshmerga and Kurdish forces in Syria also rely on not just the military personnel, but the the equipment and the training that comes along with that. Uh, a lot. It is my understanding that the a large part of the Peshmerga command and control is, in fact, uh, utilizing U.S. military equipment and and taught to the used by the Peshmerga by U.S. military instructors. Is is that is that a correct understanding? Yes, this is correct. But don't forget, not only United States of America provide this equipment and military equipment to the Peshmerga, the coalition. Uh, international coalition to defeat ISIS provide and training Peshmerga and help them. The people of Kurdistan and the Kurdistan government, the president Masoud Barzani, he lead many, many operations by himself to defeat ISIS. The many of times Kurdistan's officials and the local government from north of Syria appreciated the U.S. help and international coalition to defeat ISIS and appreciated them for their help and the Kurdistani people is very, very thankful about these relations and this kind of help by United States of America. And the, the, don't forget the Iranian government called Iraqi Kurdistan. This is second Israel should never happen because the Kurdistanis, they have a freedom of speech. I know the Kurdish democracy in process. They have a, uh, the women have a role over there. Uh, they have a parliament. They have an opposition. And they are really pro Americans, and they respect U.S. values. Right. Uh, uh, Rahim Rashidi, Washington Bureau Chief for Kurdistan 24 TV. Uh, as always, thank you, my friend. Always good having you on. Thank you very, very much. And my view, my opinion is just uh, uh, my media is <laughs> yeah. any responsibility, as you know. Yeah. And I am here as person. Thank you very, very much. And God bless United States of America, Kurdistan, Peshmerga, and U.S. allies. You got and it. I hope Thank you. President hear our voices and uh, stand with the Kurds, as he said. They are great people, great nation. Die for U.S. Uh, die with uh, U.S. And he will never forget. Thank we will you. See what will happen. You got it. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Rashid. Thank you very, very much. Rahim Rashidi from Kurdistan Twenty Four. Um, interesting comments, Alan. Yeah, it, it's. Uh, I I was struck when he said there was no warning, and I'm reminded that ten months ago, um, when the president announced very abruptly after another uh, phone call with President Erdogan of Turkey that he was withdrawing all troops from Syria. That General James Mattis, then then Secretary of Defense, said, "Enough, 
I'm done. Right. Um, after after a whole host of other disagreements, he uh, he was the loyal soldier uh, throughout. But when he found that he wasn't even being listened to anymore, it's not. It's one thing to be disagreed with. It's another thing not to be consulted, not to be advised, uh, and not to be asked for your advice. But, and 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 now, having said that, we knew that 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 was the president. Then changed his mind, but he expressed anger about changing his mind. He's very proud, as we know, of being the decider in chief. Whether or not he's the informed decider in chief, or the, whether he covers the, himself, the well, and is, that's that's the important part here. Yeah, how that? this was done. So based on the well, recording, it was not only done at all. Yeah, hold on, hold on, Admiral Ken. Uh, Dan, well, right. Not, not only a vacuum. He got he based on the reporting. He got off the phone with Erdogan and immediately, without consulting anyone, announced this policy change. Now, if you listen, that's to a the, crazy way of doing things. Now, if you listen to the president yesterday, he said he consulted everybody when he was asked a question in the White House uh, during a presser regarding the I believe the both the Pentagon and, and, and State Department have said, no, he didn't. But, but understand, <laughs> the president said, I consulted with everybody. And so, all the Republicans in, in Congress right. that actually that obviously care an awful lot about it. Lindsey Graham Came got out, on the horn right. and said, this is crazy. He even put out a press statement, which is shocking. Admiral Ken, uh, this... For a president that is touting the fact that he alone crushed ISIS, disbanded it, made it go away, killed all of ISIS, uh, which is contrary to what his intelligence community, what his defense advisors, what his National Security Council is telling him, uh, he still makes his call. In your opinion, does does this decision sound like something he would have considered or would have had consultation by the Joint Chiefs and senior non-politicals in the Department of Defense. Absolutely, absolutely. And if you go back to the, to the, you know, the days of the Obama administration, when um, wait, you think he was, you think he did consult? No, no, I don't. No, I misunderstood your question. Oh, I, 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 I was, was going to say a, a lot of oh, wow. yeah, you know, There's a lot of scared faces here in studio. No, 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 Ken. no, 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 no. He, he did not. He, he did not. And had he done so, uh, he would have been told. Uh, this is is a bad thing to do. I remind everyone: this is one of the things that brought General Mattis uh, to to resign and and leave as Secretary of Defense. Um, this is this is not something that that uh, uh, that we should we should be proud of, or nor, or should we get behind? But at the same time, that said, we we've, we've done this to the Kurds before. Uh, the first time was by mistake when at the end of the first Gulf War. We let Saddam Hussein fly his helicopters. Well, uh, his helicopters also included gunships. And what did he do? He turned them on the Kurds for for supporting us during that war. So uh, these poor people have um, not, you know, been treated like the allies that they are for quite some time now. And um, I, you know, I this is just one more reason why Donald Trump's foreign policy seems to be tied to his financial right. interests. Alan Moore and then Rich Rubino. Yeah, the 
The sad part here is that having made this mistake 10 months ago, losing General Mattis, having all this publicity about the president and his decision making, um, he probably has talked about this subject once or twice along the way um, before, which which would allow him to say, oh, yeah, I've consulted with everybody. Yeah, many months ago, long ago, and, and now you're ignoring their advice. Um, and and at late at night, this call occurred at, 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 at 10 at night, I believe, and and uh, and then that was when the president simply gave the order. This was not the case where there were a bunch of people in the room, a bunch of people led up to the call. The call was apparently uh, occurred in part because President Erdogan was was angry that he didn't get to have a one on one up at the U.N. Uh, of all things. So here here's the president um, apparently looking after his own interests. It's it's worth noting uh, uh, that that the that Trump uh, organization has Two large buildings in Istanbul, a, condo, yeah. a condominium building and, and, a, a, and, a, and, that, that a, and an office up, building right next that, door, that a very a, big building yeah. that he's very proud of. But that brings up a, that brings up a legal question. Hold on for a second, real, real quick. Let me go to I, – I got a legal question for Dan. During an interview with uh, Steve Bannon on Breitbart Radio during the campaign, and I believe it was 20, early 2016, late 2015 – President Trump was asked a question about Erdogan yep. and Turkey in the region. He came back and said, well, you know, i got to be careful here. I've got two really big towers, not just one but two. And it he, he almost, can count to two, apparently, because they said two a yeah, yeah, bunch of times did. in that interview. And he used the words, I have a conflict of interest. He, he did say, he I have words. a word, uh, the words conflict of interest. I didn't Does, realize he knows those words, too. Apparently. I think he, he said you could say, I have a conflict of interest. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, wait a minute, wait, Dan. The question is, does this truly pose an organizational conflict of interest between the president, the White House, and uh, any discussions with Erdogan and the Turkish government? Um. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, but the 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 only question is the the not so blind trust that. That President Trump has gotten into, which news I can figure, it's a blindly trust me is the blind trust. Right. Um, Newsflash. Yep. What's that, Admiral Ken? Uh, from the Pentagon. Uh, this uh, from the Pentagon. This is from uh, right now from statement of, from uh, Jonathan Hoffman, chief Pentagon spokesman, dated today, just came out. Despite continued misreporting to the contrary, Secretary Esper and Chairman Milley were consulted over the last several days by the president regarding the situation and efforts to protect U.S. forces in northern Syria yeah, in raise the face your, of military and action by Turkey. Raise your hands if you believe that's that's not simply, if that's true and not simply the, the White House backfilling. Dan, every now and then when people put something in writing and come out, they're actually telling the truth. Right. Is that it? Does that mean it was the kind of fulsome background, deep conversation about implications? No, no just that they were they're consulted we were in the consulted. last few days. Just, they, like, just like the president said, absolutely no prid quo quo. Wait a minute. But I, I mean, it, just because they said that they were consulted doesn't mean that they're actively supporting or agreeing with the president's decision. I agree with Alan. Uh, we, uh, I, I want to go to Rich Rubino. Rich Rubino, you know, historically, a decision like this, a major foreign policy and national security decision like this, uh, would have at least brought in 
uh, the major players in the National Security Council at the defense at the Department of Defense, Director of National Intelligence. It, this seems to be a one-shot call coming out of the Oval Office. Is this precedented? I don't think I can't really think of any precedent where the president would not have certainly consulted, and where he certainly even some of the senators, like you know, for Lindsey Graham, has basically staked his whole political career, at least the last two years, a former opponent of him, and now become this vociferous ally of him. And he didn't even consult uh, Lindsey Graham. It's fascinating that he's, you know, one thing about Donald Trump is he's very impulsive, but also, you know, he's Donald Trump. He doesn't really need a chief of staff. He doesn't need a secretary of defense. He tends to, as he said, as I always say, as he said when he was running, when he was running in Morning Joe, they asked him the question, you know, who would you rely on? He said, well, I have a great big brain. I think that's essentially what he relies on. He doesn't rely on people, his underlings. That's why they, that's why they change so often. Um, I think he basically relies on himself. And in this case, he just says, you know, he, I mean, if assuming, okay, assuming, let's assume, let's play naive here and assume it wasn't because of his financial interest and say that it was because he could say, I made a 2016 campaign that we're going to get out of all these wars. But, you know, when, people, when he was talking about that, People were thinking Afghanistan. They were thinking how we'd been in Iraq for such a long period of time. Very few people, I think, were actually thinking of the few troops that were actually in Syria. That's why it would be confounding because, you know, from a, simply from a political standpoint, um, very few Americans even know. I, I, wonder how, I wonder if you took a poll how many troop people even know, first of all, who the Kurds are, and secondly, that, there are actually, that, there, that the U.S. has troops in Syria. Well, I mean, Alan Moore, we've had a very strange relationship when it comes to Kurdistan, going back even to Desert Steel, Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and the war against uh, Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Uh, right after Desert Storm, and we went back to Kuwait and brought all the soldiers home, we basically left uh, Iraqi Kurdistan and the Kurdish folks up in the northwestern part of that country on their own, just basically, if you talk to people in Erbil, they were they feel they felt abandoned. Then uh, we've continued because of pressure from our NATO ally in Turkey, uh, put their central government uh, organization, the PKK, in a terrorist organizational block, according to State Department, and yet. When it's convenient, the Peshmerga fight us. They help us thwart ISIS. It's it's like we have an identity crisis with with Kurdistan, and the Kurdish question: Can we rectify it? Well, remember that that Turkey has had a very challenging internal uh, uh, battle going on for decades with the Kurds in southeastern Turkey. This is there's nothing new here and the and the Kurds cross these borders. They go into northern Iraq, they go into northern Syria, and that's the Kurdistan that they talk about, um, which which exists as a region where the where the Kurds are concentrated, but of course there is no country of Kurdistan. And this this there's been there's been terrorist acts uh, on both sides, but but including by uh, Turkish Kurds over the years, and what what Turkey wants to do feels compelled uh, to do is to have have some control, and they're now concerned. They've been concerned for years now that these uh, that these fighting forces that are pretty well equipped, thanks to the U.S. and as Rahim pointed out, other allies um, might 
decide to turn their uh, sights north in, instead of south. So there's some legitimate issues here. The sad part of all of this is that a bunch of progress has been made in the last couple of years to create what you what you might call a neutral or buffer zone between the Turkey the 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 Kurdish forces operating in northern Syria and Turkey's border. Um, not that they don't have plenty of Kurds north of that border, but we were there was an enormous amount of movement and effort underway to try to get that physical space between the two to but, buy time well into the future. But, but the PKK this blows that apart. But, but the PKK has largely held back against any uh, open animosity. Towards the Turkish government in Turkey, you'll get a lot of pushback on that one from you the Turkish so? government, hundred percent. Well, Absolutely. from the Turkish government, yes. Yeah, well, of course. I, I mean, mean, but it, then they know they do know a fair amount about this. It, no, um, but, but at the same time, if you talk to others in the region, you sit there, and, and I've talked to obviously people in Kurdistan and Erbil are going to be a little bit swayed and biased on this. But talking to others that are familiar with the situation, the PKK has kind of drawn back because of the fact that they've been fighting, in their minds, a two-front war, one against ISIS and one against Turkish aggression, it, it, it seems to me that now would be the time, because we have that kind of cease of active hostilities against Turkey by uh, Kurdish rebels in the eastern part of the region, why not take advantage of that and say, look, sit down, hug it out, and let's continue the good fight against ISIS. Well, what's hard to understand here is what prompted the the president to suddenly in the in the midst of a phone call make this shift. And even if he did have conversations in in earlier recent days with with some number of people, it's um, not hard he, for me. <laughs> he, 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 did, he, did, he, he didn't. He didn't have conversation. He didn't have as many conversations as he should have. Um, he's got a bunch of furious Republicans and Democrats who are united finally on something, um, uh, who who are so angry and distressed at at not only leaving our allies high and dry, leaving ten thousand or more uh, suspected ISIS prisoners who who are under the under the guidance and supervision of. Of the of the Kurdish forces and a big question as to what happens to them going forward. But when when the U.S. abandons uh, uh, allies in conflict uh, over well-established multi-year uh, operations and relationships, the world takes notice, right. and the world realizes that the next time America comes into a place and says, hey, we need your help. Here we are. We can give you this and this and this, and we'll we'll be there till the end. Right. They will say, oh, you mean like in northern Syria with the Kurds? Yeah. Admiral Ken, Admiral Ken uh, last question to you is, uh, you know, Erdogan, although— leading a government that is a member of NATO, uh, do the strategic interests of Turkey, do the personal interests of Erdogan match up to what the rest of NATO might think is in the best interest of the organization? And if we were to push back on this and NATO were to withdraw, would that be a big hit? Well, I, I think that um, that 
the first the answer to your first question is 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 Turkey and the aims of NATO uh, are they aligned? I would say probably not. Um, I would use as evidence Turkey's decision to buy uh, weapons from Russia. Uh, when asked not to buy Russia, they basically gave us the high sign and continued buying weapons from Russia. Uh, item two, um, you know, what what would happen if if NATO withdrew? Well. Uh, it, yeah, I, I honestly think that what we're looking at here is 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 the the creation of the circumstances for ISIS and to, to reconstitute and to once again start exerting their power in the region. Um, this has basically been uh, a move that you know if if it was designed to uh, to distract us from the impeachment hearings or discussions going on in this country, I think uh, it's probably done that for a day. But now we've got two things to talk about instead of one. But before we leave this, let me say one thing. So uh, I think it's important that we, we talk about how this, this decision got delivered to the commander in the field. There's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's an Army general out there who basically got a phone call at 3 o'clock in the morning uh, to come online uh, and do a video chat with uh, the Pentagon. And that, that, that general was told to stand down in the field right there and then. That means that your guys no longer are allowed to go out and do anything with your allies. Now, put yourself in the position of that person. You know, you sit, we sit around this table virtually, Alan, Dan, uh, and we've known each other for years. All of a sudden, somebody says, you know what? The, uh, you know, Alan's got dog poop on his shoe and no longer allowed to talk to him anymore. Magnify that by about a million. So this is not a, a good day for the U.S. It's definitely not a good day for the U.S. military because we don't behave this way. And I, I guess I should take some level of comfort that finally the Republicans in Congress uh, have got something that they will stand up against this president about. Okay, we got we got two minutes left. One minute to Dan and one minute to Rich Rubino. I, I just want to put a, a slightly more clarifying point on that. And, and Admiral Ken, this is actually a follow-up for you. In my mind, doesn't this actually make life significantly more difficult for the U.S. military on the ground in pl in places where it's a hot conflict, knowing that our, our allies can't actually trust us? Therefore, why should they be putting any faith in us in the future? Doesn't that make it more dangerous for every fighting man In a and world woman? where you have to worry about Afghan police and Iraqi police turning their weapons on U.S. personnel who are supposed to be their allies, the answer is absolutely yes. Rich Rubino, last word to you. Yeah, no, just that this, as I say, it does it does unify the Republican Party to a, to a certain degree, but there are some in kind of the libertarian wing like Mike Lee from Utah and Rand Paul from Kentucky. Those are the only senators who I think actually supported President Trump's decision. They're kind of the non-interventionist in the party in general. But, you know, when you have Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham, it's like when, when Lyndon Johnson in Vietnam said, you know, when Walter Cronkite essentially started to question the Vietnam War, he said, when you lost Walt, you lost the nation. I think for Donald Trump, when he lost some of his most vociferous allies, including Mitch McConnell, he's basically lost the Republican Party. Right, right. All right, we're going to take a break here. When we come back, we're going to talk. Did you ever think that Beijing could really be a thorn in the NBA side and vice versa? We're talking sports politics and global affairs on Backroom Politics. When we come back, stay with us. Had a show down, but I think 
think of him, how much I love him. I got a desperate notion, that's the way I feel today. My heart is aching because he's making a plaything of my devotion. That's the way I feel today. Without any reason or a word to say, that man turned his keys in, he packed and went away. What good is living? I'll soon be giving my body up to the ocean. That's the way I feel today. In Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C., this is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. And we're back here for the best political talk show you've never heard of. And we're going to talk a little bit of politics and sports and global affairs. Uh, in case you missed it, uh, there's uh, there's been a slight disturbance, and by slight disturbance, I mean a major disturbance going on in Hong Kong. Uh, there have been continued protests over the past several, I guess they've been going on now for several weeks, Alan, I mean- Longer. They, it's been longer. Yeah. Uh, regarding uh, certain rules initiated by the Chinese gov- central government in Beijing, uh, how they conflict with the original uh, agreement in the transfer of Hong Kong over to Chinese authority, all kinds of several issues. Uh, it has now gotten to a point where uh, the Hong Kong police forces, backed up by Chinese uh, forces coming from the mainland, have deployed water cannons, tear gas, and a multitude of other non, uh, non-lethal anti-protester mechanisms. The Chinese government then put out a statement and put out a mandate saying that anybody wearing masks will be arrested, prosecuted to the fullest extent. Uh, This drew a lot of ire internationally, but one one person that it kind of took as the NBA was heading towards the Far East for some exhibition games uh, was the general manager from the Houston Rockets who put out a tweet basically saying, we stand with the protesters in Hong Kong. Uh, it was about seven words he put out. Basically, it was a meme. This got the attention of the Chinese central government. Now, the Chinese central government then instituted a situation where the Canadian, or the Chinese Basketball Association, which ironically is run by... Former Houston Rocket 
big tall guy Yao Meng. He is now the head of the of the Chinese Basketball Association. Uh, pulled any and all uh, exhibition program support, uh, joint visitations, joint efforts with the NBA as a result of this. Uh, the Chinese Central Television, CCTV, and its streaming system, Tencent, has pulled all NBA content. Uh, it now, uh, this then brought the, uh, the, the ire of the NBA commissioner, Adam Silver, Adam Silver backing uh, the NBA and the Houston Rockets and a lot of the players' sentiment that uh, the Chinese heavy-handed will not be tolerated, and we stand with the protesters. Uh, l- let me let me go to you, Dan Lipner, first, because I mean we're talking l- large amounts of money. You're talking billions of viewers, possibly globally, for the NBA, and you're talking about hundreds of millions in China alone. This is a huge financial risk for. Adam Silver and the league itself, do you agree with what the league's doing and the position that they're taking? Um, Well, the league's in a tough place. And truth be told, what the league should be getting is cover from the federal government and the State Department as well as the White House. Um, I'm actually pulling up some information here right now. And uh, as far as I can tell, the State Department has been silent on the issue. Um, whereas a number of folks that I would not consider political allies on my part, including Ted Cruz, um, have come out in support of the statements and pushing back against the Chinese. Um, the fact that we have billions of dollars at play here um, is only part of the question. It's also who gets to call the shots in the the newest uh, incarnation of the New World Order. Traditionally, the United States would use its power and might on the side of free speech and and the, the, the freedoms of ideas. And the Chinese are using their might uh, for their own interests now. And without a counterbalance of a state actor, i.e. the U.S. government, to give a little cover for the NBA... The NBA is nothing by comparison to the Chinese government. Admiral Ken, you know, when we look at the response of the NBA and the solidarity that they're having with uh, Rockets GM uh, David Morey, the, you know, you, you've got the commissioner backing them, you've got players backing them, and even to a financial detriment, it, when we see big time professional sports getting politically active like this, is there a hypocrisy that we see between, you know, look at the NBA standing up for, you know, one of the GMs and players backing him, yet when Colin Kaepernick takes a knee, it causes all kinds of mass hysteria and you get a large uh, America first, if you're not standing, you're not with us, get off the field mentality. Well, it's always easier to uh, take a stand against others than it is to, you know, look inside your own house. Um, I, I'd say that there, there's some level of hypocrisy there, but um, I'm going to tap into uh, trying to keep the glass half full versus half empty. 
uh, it's really nice to see professional athletes acting in unison to put character above the dollar. You don't see that very often either. It, it, Rich Rubino, I mean, is it uh, is this a new thing that we're seeing, the advent of uh, politically active professional sports, not just stars, but it, it, it's almost like we're seeing political activism coming out of the league as a whole. Is this new? I don't know of any examples of the league specifically. I mean, they try to be, I guess, as, as, non-part- as non-political, as um, nonpartisan as possible. You know, it's like Michael Jordan supposedly said when they were trying to get him to campaign for Harvey, Harvey Gantt, who was running for a Senate seat in, in North Carolina, his native North Carolina, against Jesse Helms. And they said, why aren't you coming out? And he said, essentially, well, Republicans buy shoes as well. Um, I think that for the most part, most athletes try to stay out of it. I think there are some examples of, you know, kind of rogue athletes. The one I can think of is Trevor Bauer, for example, um, the pitcher for the Cincinnati Reds, who I know has come out in the past and has, um, and has quite, you know, he's, he's made some questions about whether global warming is a hoax, and he's questioned um, whether George W. Bush was responsible for, was responsible for 9-11, that type of thing. But I can't think of any examples where the league itself has been involved. And, you know, Alan Moore, we, we talk about, you know, you know, how Adam Silver as the commissioner is, is although backing his folks, he is putting a, a slightly financial risk on the league itself. But I, I just want to read what Adam Silver said uh, in a statement after the Maury tweet got out and after the Chinese uh, reaction. Adam Silver said, I quote, uh, it is inevitable that people around the world, including from America and China will have different viewpoints over different issues. It is not the role of the NBA to adjudicate those differences. However, the NBA will not put itself in a position of regulating what players, employees, and team owners say or will not say on these issues, unquote. It was not the first thing he said, though. The the values of equality is what he said. The first thing he said after this came out, and and, and it created... This uh, this storm, if you will, um, was uh, a comment about how it, it was regrettable that a comment made by uh, an NBA official had so offended a ho- an, an important host government. Then he started getting pushback to to that because it sound, sounded like uh, he, on behalf of the NBA, was backing down. He does understand that there are several hundred million fans. The, the, the Houston team, which was on its way to China, is hugely popular because that was the team that Yao Ming had, had played for. And then the, the Silver and a couple of others uh, started to say, hey, we don't regulate the speech of our players. Um, and, uh, and we do expect our players to have some – or players and, and, and officials to have an understanding of what's going on locally. So the, the Chinese are playing some hardball here, but they've got hundreds of millions of fans. Those fans want to see – NBA basketball. So yes, there's financial interests on on both sides. I think that 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 uh, uh, you know it's it's strange because this general manager who tweeted this thing out, he's no you know he he's not a foreign policy player. He just throws something out there. Right. He was actually tweeting something out that 
the U.S. White House should have been tweeting out about two months ago right, yep. when all this occurred and said, you know, we 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 have in America enormous you know, respect for but, for free speech and human rights, um, and and we and and we have respect for those who are willing to stand up Dan and fight Lip- for them. You know, but Dan Lipner, you know. Our beloved Washington Capitals here in the National Capital Region. Washington uh, Capitals, the hockey team? The hockey team. You, you know, not Putin, not exactly a bastion of equality and political correctness. Well, our best we, player is a Russian. Our, our, several of our players are Russian, and several of our players also back uh, Vladimir Putin and are part of, quote-unquote, Team Putin, as our producer Eric Thomas likes to say. Uh you know, are we are we expecting now professional sports players to have some sort of take that we should recognize, or is this something that we should say that's cute? Go back to the ice rink, go back to the basketball court, go back to the football field. You're getting paid a lot of money. We don't need your politics involved. Well, I mean, that's always been a debate. I mean, I mean, the probably the most famous athlete ever to make politics a thing was Muhammad Ali. Uh, he, he, he he went to the mat uh, for his beliefs and and avoided the draft for uh, as a conscientious objector and and gave up his title. Um, there's also the holding the fists high uh, was it the 72 Olympics yeah um, that that was done and it was widely condemned. Um, then there's also the Kurt Schilling um, and his oh, yeah. uh, challenging statements he's made. Uh, uh, the former, formerly known as Chris Jackson, aka Mahmed uh, 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 Raouf, mm-hmm. um, from from the uh, Denver Nuggets, who was drummed out of the league for refusing to stand for the national anthem. Um, it's there have been plenty of players doing it. Uh, Kaepernick is the is one of the more recent, but even the Black Lives Matter um, ESPN opened the ESPYS uh, three or four years ago with Chris Paul, uh, Dwayne Wade, and LeBron James standing in front. Uh, of right. the, the audience talking about Black Lives right. Matter, and I believe Chris Paul pointed out his dad's a cop. Right. Um, so yeah, uh, the this has been an ongoing thing. The only question here, again, and this is to Alan's point, the players taking action and should and being noticed. Yeah, they're athletes. They also have political opinions and they have a stage. Sometimes they take that that stage and th- that opportunity too far in way outlandish ways. And sometimes they help highlight something can, and can right. help move a movement forward. Yeah, but only in a way that they can do it. And, yep. and, and I think that not only athletes, but uh, performers uh, back in the, the early days of the civil rights movement, Frank Sinatra, of all people, uh, started working with, with, with you know, the, the civil rights organization to try and, and, uh, and, and break up American apartheid. So I, I, I think because he was that, so offended that Sammy Davis Jr. couldn't couldn't come in the same entrance. Exactly uh, right. Some, some clubs, but, but Admiral Ken, you know, at the same time with today's nationalistic America First type mentality, is there, a, you know, is there a conflict between uh, what we're seeing coming out of the NBA, what we're seeing coming out of uh, 
uh, what we're seeing coming out of, of the commissioner's office. At the same time, we also hear the sentiments of people like Laura Ingram on Fox, who basically came out and told LeBron James when he said something politically to shut up and dribble the ball. Uh, you know, so, is, is there so con- where, how do we divide that or how do we cross that divide? Much, much like you know, the uh, our old place in downtown DC, where we used to have the occasional cigar and and and, uh, and imbibe while we did the show. Um, I, I do the same thing down here in Florida, and we had a we had almost the exact conversation not even a week ago, uh, late one evening, and and I'll tell you how I, I describe the world as a bell curve. In the middle of the bell curve are the regular people. We get up, we go to work. We don't try to offend anybody. We don't believe that being polite is political correctness. We just do, we, we go through and we do our thing. We got crazy people on the left side, on the far left side of that bell curve that would throw a fit because Ellen DeGeneres had the, had the, tenacity, the, the temerity to sit next to George W. Bush at a football game. And we got the crazy people on the right, like Laura Ingram, who were trying to tell people like LeBron James to just dribble the ball. The challenge is for us in the middle to keep the left people and the right people at bay. And that's how you do it. That that sounds about right. Alan Moore. Well said, Ken. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Rich Rubino, final word to you. I mean, is is this something that we're going to see more of? I mean, you know, when we see you know, a serious subject being tackled by people like, you know, Colin Kaepernick and those who backed him, uh at the same time as uh as a magical producer of the century, Eric Thomas pointed out, uh, you know, we also have Dennis Rodman trying to do foreign policy in North Korea. Uh, the, the, the question is it, more, more effective than Trump. More, yeah, well, arguably, <laughs> arguably, but possibly. Uh, Rich Rubino, the question is, is, is this something we're going to see more that, you know, the power of money, the power of celebrity, the power of sports is going to be almost a... Uh, an influence on the way that we view politics. Oh no, categorically, and part of that is because so many, so many people kind of genuflect to professional athletes. It's the same way, for example, that they do to um, actors or any type of celebrity. You know, they obviously have an inordinate influence on the political scene um, simply because that because so many people, you know, because so many people know who they are. Look up to them, you know. If Barbara Streisand or Snoop Dogg makes an endorsement of somebody, it's going to be in the news. Specifically, if they make an endorsement of a candidate that very few people had heard of, for example, everyone's going to say, you know, how do these? Why do these people make an endorsement? Um, you know, when Ben and Jerry, for example, in 2003 endorsed Dennis Kucinich over Howard Dean, the question was, well, why did they endorse somebody in their homes? Why did they not endorse their former home state's governor? And I make that analogy. Because Ben and Jerry, you know, they're not necessarily involved in politics. They're not, they're not politicians, but people know who Ben and Jerry is because of their ice cream. So as a result, they have an influence, and they chose to use that influence. And I think most people— And it did wonders for Dennis Kucinich's political uh, future. Yeah, right. <laughs> you, you know, you know yes, what's funny Dennis is— Dennis Kucinich ended up winning that election, by the way, and became president and served for two terms. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, by, and by the way, Ken, and by the way, Rich Rubino, just proving— your age or, or dating yourself, the fact that you consider the big top name talents as Snoop Dogg and who else did you say? Barbara Streisand. Uh, Barbara Streisand. Names. Barbara still names. Streisand, yeah. <laughs> I, I could we, have said the little the judges, rascals, maybe. No, the judges would have accepted like uh, Lady Gaga or something a little bit more modern. And even then, I'm getting a look from our millennial producer like you are so old. I know. All right, <laughs> on that thought, uh, we're going to call it a day. 
Uh, thank you very much to Alan Moore, Dan Lipner, uh, Admiral Ken, Rich Rubino. <coughs> Excuse me. As always, thanks to Rob the Engineer behind the glass. Thank you for keeping us on track. And also a special thank you to uh, our producer, Eric Thomas, who is also the latest post-grad uh, admitted student to the Sun Devil Arizona State University. Nice job, buddy. Uh, we will be back for the next episode of the best political talk show you never heard of. You can follow us on Twitter, on Facebook. You can also, uh, oh, on Instagram, too. You can also download us as your favorite podcast on Google, Apple, Spotify, TuneIn. You name it, we're there. We're kind of a big deal now. Hey, have a great week, America. We'll see you next time.